Jesus left that place and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, Where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Then Jesus said to them, Prophets are not without honor, except in their hometown, and among their own kin, and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And he was amazed, he was amazed at their unbelief. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, Highland. It's good to see you here uh, today, especially on this Thanksgiving weekend as we prepare for family and everything that entails and food and everything that entails. It's going to be a good time. Uh, there's a saying that says something like, you can't go home again. And I, I think this is true. Uh, especially if you've ever experienced that moment where you kind of, you're, it's time to go to college and so you pack all your stuff up and you move to the dorm or it's, it's time to get your own place and so you, you put your stuff in your car and you take it over around town. It's hard to go back. I mean, this was my experience. I was uh, a freshman, 18 years old, here at ACU, and I, I distinctly remember that moment. We had unloaded everything of my stuff and put it in the dorm, and then there was this very distinct sound as my parents gave hugs and, and kisses, and then the, the sound of the van doors slamming. And then they drove off. And what followed then was just this amazing sense of absolute and total freedom. I mean... They had done a good job. They prepared me. But then along with that freedom came like all of this responsibility. Like I had already known how to wash my clothes, but there were a few details I had to work out. For instance, if you're going to wash your jeans, put the bleach in after you put the water in. Otherwise, you're just going to ruin all of your jeans. So you have to go to the store. And jeans are expensive. And, you know, 18-year-old freshmen always get that first application to a credit card. And so you know, just charge the jeans on a card, and now i got to pay that back. That's not just free money. That's not cool. But by the end of the semester, I'd gotten the hang of it. It was right about, it was right about now when I was hitching a ride to go back uh, up to Denver, and my family was going to be so impressed with the new shame. I mean, I knew how to manage myself. I mean, I had changed. I had grown up in ways that were very difficult to perceive if you just looked at the kid that got dropped off four months earlier. And so I walk into that house, and I'm ready to demonstrate just how grown up I really am. And I was blown away at the way my sisters and my parents treated me. <laughs> home wasn't the same. You can't go home again because you change, but also because... Home changes the older you get. Home is this wonderful gift that we've been given. It's, it's this thing that doesn't quite really exist. It's the only thing that ties us together is, is love and genetics. 
Uh, Natalie used to work at uh, Stanford Hospital when we lived in California, and uh, she had one client who had suffered a very major heart attack. His life was not going to be the same. It was fundamentally changed, and she sat down in the hospital room with him to help him kind of realize all of the differences that were going to happen in his life. And so she asked some resource questions like, do you have some family that can help you as you get used to this new normal? And he said, well, I don't have any family. And, and, and she kind of just pried a little, prodded a little more and kind of dug in a little bit closer. And he had, his parents had passed, but he had siblings and he had an ex-wife and he even had children. But he didn't have anybody that was going to be able to look out for him. He had no one that had been willing to do the work of covenant that family requires. And as a consequence, he didn't really have a sense of home. And as you get older, the older you get, you realize it's your job to create that sense of home for someone else. That place of security, that place where holidays and rituals have special meaning. It's that place that you can always go back to no matter what. And we come to the story in Mark where Jesus comes home to preach in his hometown. Jesus began his ministry at about 30, which means that the most likely scenario is that he was a carpenter that lived in that town the rest of his life. And you can imagine as Jesus is walking back to Nazareth, there's the old men at the city gates that had been there his entire life. The old men that would tell him stories about the history of the town and about the people that lived there and the histories of their families. People, the old men that would tell him stories of Israel and who he is. And as he passed through the city gates, he probably came across shops where shop owners had, had paid him to do errands and chores uh, as he was growing up. And finally, he came to his neighbors. His neighbors who had watched him grow up month by month and year after year. Jesus has a city and Jesus had a family. Jesus had people who knew him. Jesus had a home. But it was all a myth. And I want to use myth in the good sense of that word. It's the overriding story that combines all of our stories together. Just because something isn't fact doesn't make it untrue. There are healthy myths, and those myths help you create home. For instance, in my family, we have a myth about what we can talk about. When I was growing up, as long as we could talk about it, we could deal with it. If we could sit around at the kitchen table and talk about our problems and work out what's going on, then we had a chance that it was going to be okay. And this was true because there came things that we couldn't talk about, and we weren't able to handle them. Jesus has a home, like we all did. But it wasn't quite real. Not that you could touch it, but that it was a, a place of love, a place of belonging. And if you have the kind of story like the man that my wife encountered at the hospital bed, you know how terrible it is when that isn't there. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the ordinary miracle that makes us family. With Christ as our eldest brother, you as our father, 
we share something together that's stronger than genetics and stronger than childhood and stronger than even death. And so this morning as we gather together as family, we give you thanks. And we express our gratitude for all of the good that you have done in our midst. And now, Father, as we turn our hearts and our minds to your word, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I may speak your truth and love to these, your people. And it's together that the church says, amen. So Jesus comes home and he preaches a sermon. And, and the sermon starts really well, and then it just kind of veers off course. At first, the crowd is in wonder. The crowd is amazed. And pretty quickly, that turns to something else kind of like, now, wait a minute. We know this guy. He used to be a laborer here. We know his family. But that first reaction was wonder. They were amazed. When was the last time you felt amazed about God? When was the last time you experienced wonder? There's a million different ways that you can experience that. Maybe it's creation or uh, in, the, in, the, in the something where you witness God do something powerful. Uh, it's in an idea that totally revolutionizes your mind and changes the way that you perceive the world. When was the last time that you felt awe in the presence of God? Uh, what I'd like you to do for just a minute, because I want us to live in that as kind of a backdrop for the sermon today, is I want you to share that experience. The last time, or maybe the first time, or any time that you experienced the wonder of God. And if you don't mind, turn to the person next to you and just tell them that story very briefly. Tell them what happened. But, but I want you to kind of sit in that feeling for, for just a minute. And the rules are really simple to this. If you've been here before, you know how this works. Just turn to them. If you don't know who they are, you probably just met them at the green. But if you didn't, ask them their name and share and then listen. But the, the other side of that is if you don't want to play, just don't make eye contact. <laughs> Everybody gets it. It's cool. Uh, take, take 45, take 90 seconds and, and share that with the person next to you. The last time you felt wonder. Ready, go. I want us to live there because I want us to realize that was Nazareth's initial reaction to hearing Jesus. And you have to imagine the stories about Jesus preceded him as he was coming home. The hometown boy has become the hometown hero. And as, as they realized he was coming back, together they formed the Nazareth Welcoming Committee. And you can imagine the committee members gathering in the basement somewhere with terrible coffee, trying to figure out exactly how it is that we're going to welcome this, this Jesus back. And, you know, most of us, when, you know, committees do this sort of thing, when there's someone famous, you know, like an NFL star from a small town or a, or a movie star that really makes it big or a politician, and they probably ask the question, what do we put on the banner? You know, over the city gates, they hung a sign that said, Home of Jesus, Nazareth. And then they had to ask the real questions like, how do we organize the service when Jesus preaches? I mean, the important people are going to need to be on the front row. People with power like to be close to people that have more power. And then they all wanted to remember the nice boy Jesus who lived down the way. 
I mean, they've heard about the miracles that he performs, the calming storm, the garrison demoniac, the healing the man with the withered hand, and healing the lame man to walk again, and healing Peter's mother-in-law, and cured a woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years, and that little girl who was raised to life, you know, her father, he was the leader of another synagogue. For two years of my high school career, I went to an arts magnet school called the uh, uh, Denver School of the Arts. And instead of doing like normal electives, all we did was art stuff like music or drama, theater, visual arts, all sorts of things like that. My, my major in high school was conducting and composing music. And it was so obvious that we were so full of ourselves. <laughs> you couldn't walk down those halls without bumping into somebody's ego. And we would always have these conversations about who was really going to make it. You know, to, to go to Broadway or to get into Juilliard or to see their work in a gallery in Soho. And we all believed secretly deep down that we were going to become famous for suffering for our art. And when we did, we would come back to the Denver School of the Arts. We might give a little money. We might do a little workshop, maybe have something named after us. There was only one of us who even got close to making it big. His name was Art, and he got on a reality show, and he came in eighth place. <laughs> he is the biggest hero in our school. This man is coming home, and he is claiming to be the Messiah. And if we believe the stories of what he has done, if we believe the stories of the power he has, he might just be the one. And so in the synagogue where he played on the floor as a child and ran around the halls as a boy, as a boy he sits down to preach. And Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus said, but Luke does. Luke says that he quotes Isaiah, and he, he, he announces the inauguration of the Lord's favor. And then he mentions Elijah and Elisha. And that first part of the sermon is amazing because it's what people want to hear. God is going to set everything right, and that is good news. But then Jesus takes this unfortunate turn for the dignitaries sitting on the front row. Elijah and Elisha were our prophets, but they couldn't perform miracles in Israel. But they did it for the Gentiles. And this is not what the Nazareth Hometown Welcoming Committee had in mind when they put out the balloons and the flowers. This isn't what they sent out very, uh, via a very carefully curated email regarding suggested preaching topics for your big day. Mark also glosses over their reaction. But Matthew doesn't. Matthew tells us how this hometown committee was about to throw Jesus off a cliff. What Mark does tell us is how the people insult him. They call him carpenter. That's kind of a, a, an umbrella term, which kind of might just mean day laborer. That Jesus was the guy standing outside of the paint store, waiting and hoping for someone just to come by and pay him a day's wages. They call him the son of Mary, not the son of Joseph. Because we all remember the scandal and we're not sure who his daddy is. Who does he think he is preaching this sermon to us? 
Familiarity does breed contempt, but it also breeds content. When you want to learn something big and new, you want to learn it from far away, not from those who are around you. I cannot tell you how many times I've come home uh, and to tell Natalie this new great idea, and she says, I've been telling you that for years. <laughs> Maybe it's not that he has come home with a new teaching that is hard to swallow. Maybe it's just who he is. That he has become like my uncles would like to say, who grew up in southern Indiana, he's too big for his britches. J.D. Vance wrote this amazing work called Hillbilly Elegy. An elegy is a poem for the dying or the deceased. And, and he writes about his, where he grew up in, in, in uh, native Appalachia, the culture of Appalachia. And, and, he's, and he, he talked about what it meant to get too big, getting too big for your britches. And I, I kind of experienced this in part when I worked in Arkansas. I worked in a town that was very poor. And it was very dependent on manufacturing for the jobs. And if, if, if you wanted to get a good job in that town, you had to work for one of the plants. But everybody knew that Whirlpool and Ream and all of those other companies already had buildings and warehouses down in Mexico and all it took was for some Excel sheet for the balance to tip slightly. And the last, last thing that those people would be doing at their jobs was boxing up their tools to send them south. But sometimes what happens in this kind of hillbilly culture would be you don't want to get too successful. Because it was a comment on everybody else. If you got too successful, somebody had to bring you down. Who do you think you are going off to college who do you think you are marrying someone from outside our clan? Who do you think you are moving away to the big city? Who do you think you are claiming that you're the Messiah? Why does this story make me feel uncomfortable? I realized it when I looked down at my shirt and I saw my name tag. And it said, Nazareth Welcoming Committee. The point of the whole book of Mark is for us to see so that we can believe. But in Nazareth, Jesus doesn't perform many miracles. And that's not what they expected. That's not the show that they were planning for everyone to see. It's not that he couldn't. He wasn't tired. It's that he would didn't. And maybe this is what he meant when he talked about different kind of soils. That even the most abundant farmer throwing his seed to the wild will pass by soil that doesn't grow. And the sower will move on. There were so many things that the people were amazed by Jesus. This is the only time in Mark where Jesus is amazed. And Jesus is amazed at their unbelief. There's a hard reality in, rea in rejection. When you're not chosen for the team, when you're not called for the second interview, when you're passed over for promotion. The first job I wanted out of college, it was my first real job as like an adult, and uh, 
I interviewed and I thought I did really well and I thought this is going to totally work. And then the supervisor calls me and, and they say, well, we think you might be more interested or you might be good at this other position. Would you be interested in applying for that one? And that position played like half as much as the job I wanted to get. And I said, you know, I'd really rather have the first job I interviewed for if, if it's the same to you. And they said, that's not an option. It's hard. It's what Emily, uh, Amy Dickinson calls the skinny envelope. When you, when you apply to colleges and you get your acceptance letters back, when you get the acceptance letter, there's all sorts of pages in that packet because you've got to fill out forms and you've got to fill out stuff for housing and you've got to fill out information. It's a very dense packet. But when you receive the rejection letter, it's just a very skinny envelope that begins with, thank you for your interest, but unfortunately we are... How frustrating would it be not to be taken seriously in your hometown? I don't know. I don't blame the Nazareth Welcoming Committee for being not quite open to it. My friend Chris reminded me when I was frustrated about not being heard as clearly as I want to that it's very difficult for people to take sex or financial advice from anyone where you change their diapers. And there is a way that people are going to remember you at your worst, at your youngest, your most immature, and that one mistake that you made a long time ago, but somehow that has branded your identity, and that can be a prison. And I wonder if we, the most familiar with Jesus in our culture, are doing the same thing. The prophet is always a voice that we think should come from the outside. Maybe the reality is we would rather be on the Nazareth Welcoming Committee than to follow Jesus. I mean, after all, it's way more easy to be interested in being the admirers of Jesus than the disciples. It's so easy to be proud when the hometown boy, to, to claim him as your own, to tell the I knew him win stories, to kind of take a little bit of credit for what happened. But Jesus doesn't need any fans. He calls us to be disciples. And it's so easy to admire the tireless work of those who are helping the poor, who are visiting the imprisoned, who are sharing the gospel with the lost, who are doing the work that Jesus proclaims in Isaiah and remain completely unchanged. When you just admire the work of God rather than entering into the work of God, that's just plain religion. And Jesus wasn't inviting people from his hometown to a new religion. He was inviting them to a new kingdom. So let me put it this way. If the extent of your discipleship is liking for prayers on Facebook and complimenting the way the sermon really held somebody else's feet to the fire, I'm not sure that you will see any of the power or the wonder or the intense love for God that Jesus wants to show you. I love Barbara Brown Taylor. She's my favorite preacher. I love what she says about this text. What is frightening is that Jesus' power was not made manifest there. But even more importantly, he never went back. Jesus never preaches at a synagogue again. But the hope in this text is those that hear that want to become disciples, 
who want to see the power of God made manifest in our lives, we get to see it. And that is incredible. May you this week find yourself in the posture of a disciple who follows Jesus rather than just a fan who admires. May you hear the voice of the Spirit as it calls you deeper and deeper into the love of God. And may you grow more in joy and wonder and awe as we worship the God who created all things. Go in peace.